who are coming in, you might have seen a little paper that was an outline of this weekend series, but I've been informed by two young men who walked up here that many of you didn't see it, or you didn't care to pick it up, one of the two. If you'd like a copy of that outline, if you'll raise your hand, there are people behind you who will give you one of those. If you'll just hold your hand up until you get one. For those of you that have two free hands, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 1. There was a time in Adventist history when this passage was pivotal to our future. And if I understand the history correctly, that if this passage had been understood and practiced, we wouldn't have been born, which would not have hurt our feelings. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That first verse is significant because we've heard that in all you're getting, get knowledge. We've heard that the knowledge is the chief thing. A knowledge of God is how we receive the precious promises that allow us to partake the divine nature in First Peter. But is there something dangerous about knowledge? What can knowledge do? It can make us like Lucifer. Knowledge can make a man proud, and if it does that, it's a disaster. Because for the few of you that were here last night, how many of the wicked understand? None of the wicked, according to Daniel 12, none of the wicked understand. And if you can imagine this, you're learning more and more knowledge until you become proud, and so now you're wicked, and so now you don't understand. That would be knowledge, 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 no understanding. It would be a disaster if that was the pattern you followed in your spiritual life. Verse 2. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as yet as he ought to know. In the time in Adventist history when this happened, there was a young man preaching and there was an elder gentleman in the audience. The elder gentleman was Uriah Smith. The younger man was A.T. Jones. And A.T. Jones was speaking on a topic that Uriah Smith was familiar with. The covenants, and the law of God, and the Sabbath, and righteousness, and faith, and how these things work together. Uriah Smith's opinion was that he understood these things. And if you understand these things, which are the foundation of Christianity, why would you need to hear a young man speaking about them? He never wrote that, and I might be putting into his mind word or speaking like words he never had in his mind. But whatever the case was, A.T. Jones preached on these verses. That if we think we know it, the one thing the Bible says is we don't know it as well as we ought to. If we would confess that, we would be teachable. Because there's a deplorable situation where a man has so much knowledge that he is no longer teachable. That would mean that he is proud and he has no understanding of those things mentioned in Daniel 12. I hope that wasn't confusing. 
I'm going to say it briefly and go on. If in our learning we begin to feel that we know things pretty well, not only do we contradict 1 Corinthians 8.2, but we set ourselves up for the, fir- for the curse of 1 Corinthians 8.1, we can become proud, and that's a disaster. Last night we were speaking about the need for the spiritual gifts in the church. I think for many of you, you've studied this at some point, maybe in evangelistic series or during baptismal studies. Maybe you haven't. But the Bible is very clear that spiritual gifts are continuing in the church today. How long are they going to be in the church? Till we come to a unity of the faith, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. The gifts are here. But why would we need, for example, to have prophets in the church or a prophet in the church when we have the Bible, which is so true and full of everything that we need. This is review of last night, a recap. The reason that John the Baptist was sent, even though Jesus was about to come, wasn't because John the Baptist was more accurate than Jesus. Have you ever wondered, why didn't we not just start with Jesus? Since Jesus was wiser and brighter and more holy than John the Baptist, why not just skip John and go straight to Jesus. But what does Isaiah say? He was the voice crying in the wilderness to make way the, to make straight the way of the Lord, to make ready a people for his coming. We need those extra biblical prophets because our hearts are not prepared to receive the truth for this time. Is that true for the generation today? Is this a particularly converted generation? A particularly holy one? For those of you over in that little corner, is the second passage there? What is the second passage listed? I want to go to Revelation 3, but I guess I should follow the order there. Go to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. What I'm talking about right now is this idea of the testimony of Jesus. For those who have gone... Through studies in the truths taught by Adventists, we would know that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's a quote from Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But first, 2 Corinthians. That's what I meant, and that's where I am. That's because I'm thinking about those Chronicles things. Chapter 17, and looking at verse 9. In the gifts of the spirits that, that the New Testament lists, you'll find some gifts like pastors and teachers, an evangelist. Pastors and teachers, one of the things they're to do is to point out sin in the body. I don't know if your speakers here do it. I suppose they do, but I don't know. But if they're doing their duty, they're going to be pointing out sins. Not particularly the sins that are out there, because it's no good to point those out to you. What sin should they point out? The sins that are in here. We need to know our sins. But there is a problem with depending on pastors to point out the sins of the church. Look at verse 9. Also the children of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. Does that describe the people of God still today? Is it possible that there are people here who are living in sin, some very wicked, abominable sin... And that the elders here know nothing about it. 
It's true, isn't it? I mean, guaranteed. Unless you're just a bunch of holy people. It's guaranteed because the, God's people do secretly those things. And the pastors, maybe intuitively, can preach against some sins, but God uses another means to preach against sins that pastors can't see. Look at verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. What is the testimony of the Lord in this verse? By the way, when we read about the Lord in the Old Testament, check me on this, I believe it's Jesus. That Jesus, if you'll check the order of inspiration, the Father gives a message to Jesus who gives it to his angel to give it unto his servants, the prophets, and they give it to us. And the Lord here that testifies by his servants, the prophets, is Jesus. So when you say the testimony of the Lord, I'm just going to read it simply. It's the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does our Lord Jesus Christ testify? By the prophets, by all the seers. That's how he does it. And what do the prophets and seers say when the Lord is testifying through them? Turn ye from your evil ways. The pastor says the same thing, but the pastor doesn't know what the evil ways are. But does God know? And by his spirit, working through those, those agencies, the seers and the prophets, God can speak to us. If you've ever seen that series of books called Testimonies for the Church, nine volumes, I'll speak plainly my testimony here. I believe that God spoke through Ellen White as his messenger. I really don't think that you ought to just believe that if someone tells you that. I don't think you ought to be in a hurry to believe it. If that is a new idea to you, take your time. If you ever get in the business of very quickly accepting profits, you're going to accept a false one somewhere along the line. Take your time, slow down, check it out. But I've done that, and I think really she was a prophet. Here we have those nine volumes, Testimonies to the Church, and those who've read it, with the faith that I have, I think you found that they reveal some of your secret sins that the pastors just can't touch. Is there anyone who'd raise their hand and admit that that was true in your experience? You don't have to, well, that wasn't many hands. Well, it's true in my experience. And maybe the word admit was key in that sentence. summary of what we've said so far, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ is given through the prophets, and the prophets are saying, keep the commandments of God. Breaking them is the same thing as sin. They're revealing our secret breaking of the Ten Commandments. It would be odd for a prophet to be in a church that wasn't teaching that we should keep the commandments of God. A prophet would be out of place, according to this passage, because what do the prophets say? Keep the commandments of God. And in fact, in church history, you find that when the church turned away from the commandments of God, prophets turned away from the church. When the church came back to keeping the testimony, Revelation predicted that there would be a revival of the spirit of the prophets in the church. Are you communicating to me too high or too low? It's... They said it's too high and that I'm at fault for all the whistling going on. Is that better? Hmm? 
for those who ever hear this in some electronic format, my apologies. We need prophets in our church. The whistling is still happening. I almost learned your name a little bit ago, but I forgot it. Gizmo, I almost learned that. Turn with, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at another incident of the testimony of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3. I want to study with you in this passage five words in verse 17, and one word in verse 18, and then tell you that sometime later in this year, I'm likely going to be here, God willing, speaking about the rest of this thing. Revelation 3 and verse 17, the last five words are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. They are the testimony of Jesus regarding the church in the end of time. If any of you are new Adventist or old Adventist, and you could be an old Adventist that's also a new Adventist. But if you're an Adventist and you've noticed that there's some unconvertedness in the church, or if you're in the evangelical churches somewhere or non-evangelical churches somewhere and you noticed wickedness in the church there, before you let it shock you, you should just know it was a matter of prophecy. That in Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus predicted the history of the Christian church, he said good things and bad things about the first age. He said only good things about the second age. He said good and bad things about the third age. Good and bad things about the fourth age. Good and bad things about the fifth age. Only good things about the sixth age. But when he got to the seventh age, it was only bad things. And that's our time. Laodicea. What does the word Laodicea mean? It means a people judged. And when Jesus describes the church for this time, he does it with these five words. That word wretched. The Greek word there translated wretched is used only one other time in Scripture. That's in Romans 7. You can check that out later with your concordance or however you check those things out. But it describes there a man who is in captivity to the law of sin. He wants to do right, but he can't do it. And that describes our church in general according to Jesus. I'll say it's true whether or not by our church you mean the Seventh-day Adventist church or the worldwide Christian church. Whether you're, Are there faithful people in the Adventist church? There are. Are there faithful people in the evangelical churches? There are. But what's the general truth about the whole bunch of them? We're wretched. We're in captivity to the law of sin and death according to Jesus, the true witness. That second word, miserable, the Greek word translated miserable is used only one other place in the entire Bible. That's in First. Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. That passage I don't think is up there. I know it's not. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. There, speaking about the resurrection, Paul goes into a hypothetical, a very sad hypothetical description. He's saying, if there was no resurrection, this would be so and this would be so. And he says in verse 19, if there is no resurrection, then we would be of all men most miserable. Because our hope in, I'm paraphrasing, our hope of heaven would be vain. We would be thinking we're going to heaven, but we would be lost. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, <clears throat> we are of all men most miserable. Jesus pulls that word from 1 Corinthians 15 and uses it to describe in general the last day church. It is miserable. What does it mean? It thinks it's on its way to heaven 
And as a general thing, it's wrong. As a general thing, we're not on our way to heaven. We're lost for the same reason that we're wretched. We're in captivity to the law of sin and death. Look with me in your Bibles at Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> Amos chapter 5. Are Adventists the only body of believers who are looking forward to Christ's second coming? Maybe it would be accurate to say that most bodies of believers today are looking forward to Christ's second coming. There are exceptions. Are Muslims looking forward to Christ's second coming? They are. They certainly are. Isa, Jesus, is coming on the day of judgment. Are evangelicals looking forward to Christ's second coming? They certainly are. And the word Advent in the word Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, means we're looking forward to Christ's coming. It might be important to clarify that to some people when you're talking to them because Advent in other contexts is usually a reference to Christ's first coming. Not always, but usually. Amos 5, 18 and 19. It says, Woe unto you who desire the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Another word for it is Christ's second coming. The passage says, Woe unto those who desire Christ's second coming. If I could just make an application for this church, I would say, Woe unto Adventists, those who are looking forward to Christ's second coming. Also, woe unto Muslims and woe unto evangelicals and woe unto everyone else who's looking forward to Christ's second coming. Why? It says, To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man, verse 19, did flee from a lion. Do we ever talk about the devil as a roaring lion? The devil is a roaring lion and we don't like it. We wish we could get away from him because he messes up our life. And we have an idea that if we get to heaven, the devil doesn't go there, so we're free from the devil. As if a man was running to heaven to get away from the devil and a bear met him. You can read your Bible and you'll find places where bears meet him. They meet the youngins. When the youngins were making fun of a man who was... It was Elisha, and he had just witnessed the taking up of his good friend Elijah. If I could summarize my understanding of this passage, Jesus says, Woe unto my church. You're looking forward to my coming. You think you're going to get away from the devil, but you're going to find judgment for the way you have respected the prophets. Let me say disrespected the prophets. The verse goes on, verse 19, as if a man went into the house. Do we talk about heaven like we're going home? Going home to heaven? As if a man went into the home and leaned his hand on a wall and a... We're talking about when Jesus comes back, we're going to home. But we're not going home because we'll find out at that point we've been tricked by the devil. I'm going to have to speed up. Wretched and miserable. We are in captivity to the sin. We think we're going to heaven, but we're not. Then that poor and blind and naked, I'm just going to tell you what they mean so I can get on to my main points. Poor. What are the riches of Christianity? You'll find it later, James 2.5. It's faith and love. We think we have it, and we don't have much of it at all. Blind. That was the way Paul was prior to his experience of being baptized. 
It was a symbol to him because you'll find in Acts 26, verse 18 and 19, that he was called to turn men from darkness to light, to open their eyes, that they might receive forgiveness of sins. In that passage, do people whose eyes are still closed have forgiveness of sins? No, they don't. Jesus uses that idea to describe his church in general. We are blind. We don't have forgiveness of sins. And if you doubt me on the first four, at least the last word, you can't doubt it. It's too simple. It says naked. What is, in the New Testament, spiritual clothing? That might have not been English, but you understand the question. The spiritual clothing we're to wear is the righteousness of Jesus. Now you tell me, if you're naked, are you going to heaven? Nada. Udemia. Or whatever language you like to use. You're not going to go. If you're naked. These are the five words from verse 17. Jesus says to his church in general, you're unconverted, 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 unconverted. And at least the last time he says it, we should understand it. We're talking about the testimony of Jesus. Is it similar to the testimony of Jesus back there in Kings? It is. It's pointing out to us that we are really lacking in moral standing. In verse 18, the word I want to study with you only is the word by. Because you know from your previous experience probably that, well, the word poor tells you. Jesus says buy gold, but he just said that we are poor. And you can think it through how much gold a poor man can buy. How do you buy when you're poor? Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. If the church in general is unconverted, her case nearly hopeless because she thinks she's just fine, what, pray tell, can she do to acquire the gold of faith and love? If she gets the gold of faith, will she be clothed? She will be because faith works by love and we have righteousness by faith. If she can get this gold from her poor state, she's going to get the clothing and she's going to get the eyesight and she's going to no longer be wretched and no longer... She's going to get what she needs if she can buy it. Isaiah 55.1. The first word in the King James Version is important. Ho! I was in, speaking in Puerto Rico last week and found to my dismay that that word is entirely missing from the Spanish Bibles. And I'm afraid for some of you it might be missing from your Bible. I haven't never checked it. I just figured it was in everyone's Bible. But ho means listen up. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me. Even if you missed the first word of verse 1, you got it in verse 2. Because ho and listen carefully to me mean the same thing. Verse 3, incline your ear. If you missed it in verse 1 when it said ho, at least you had it in verse 2 where it said listen carefully to me. But if you didn't read the two verses, you have it in verse 3 where it says incline your ear. And the second phrase of verse 3 says listen and your soul shall live, or hear, and your soul shall live. Have you ever heard this English phrase? Of course you have. Pay attention. You heard it in elementary school. That's what poor people have to pay. And that's all we got. 
That's poor Laodiceans. What does it require to buy without money and without price the gold that we need? We have to pay attention. We have to listen to what the true witness has to say to us as a people. And if we will listen to it truly, incline our heart to it, if we'll go after what the witness has to say, we can have what we need. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The logic used by Hebrew writers is very often backwards to me. And I've heard from people who know something about it, which I don't, that that's because they often thought backwards to me. And it often has helped me in trying to work through some of these complicated sentences that are three verses long in Paul's writings to start at the end of the sentences and work backwards. And I'm just giving that thought to you so you can try it sometime and see if it helps you with some of those immense sentences. The end of the sentence that we're going to look at is in verse 8. We're going to work backwards. Verse 8 says, Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is this sentence, what's the word, for our time? It is. It's talking about the way you want to be when Jesus comes back. Whatever the verses before it are saying in the first half of the sentence, it has a purpose or an end in mind. What is the end in mind? That when Jesus comes back, you could be blameless. The meaning of that is for another study, another place, and another time. But it's significant. I'll just give you a hint that while the Bible speaks about every generation being perfect in Jesus, it speaks about the last generation in a way it speaks of none other. It speaks of the last generation as being ripe when the others are perfect blades or perfect sprouts. It speaks of the last generation as being blameless and without spot and without wrinkle and a, a number of phrases that aren't used in reference to other people. God has a purpose and that's what it is. Now let's go back to verse 7 and see his means to get to that end. Verse 7 is on the page before. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The group that is going to be made this way, blameless, how do they relate to Christ's coming? They're waiting for it. This is more encouraging than Amos 5. Because here, it's a good thing to be waiting for Christ's second coming. It said in the first half of verse 7 that, that God uses gifts to prepare his waiting people to be blameless when he comes. Do you follow me so far, working backwards? What does God use to prepare waiting people to be blameless when he comes? He uses gifts. And apparently, sometimes certain gifts are missing from the church, but how many will be missing in this case? It indicates no gifts are going to be missing for those who are waiting so that they can be blameless when Christ comes back. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, what is the testimony of Christ? It's the spirit of prophecy. 
It's the work of Jesus working through his prophets to communicate his message. Were there prophets active in the Corinthian church? Well, you can know it from the book of Acts, and you can know it from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's very apparent there were a number of, of prophets active in the Corinthian church. In fact, Corinth is the only city that received one of the epistles in which we have any evidence in Acts that there were prophets active in that city. And which of the epistles speaks about the testimony of Jesus being there? Well, it's the letter to Corinth. Does that make any sense? For most of you, it looks like it doesn't. So I'm going to say that thought again. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Which of the cities that received epistles had prophets in them? Corinth did. A few other cities had it, but they didn't receive epistles. And which of the epistles mentions the testimony of Jesus as being in the church? The message to the Corinthians. Well, that makes sense to me. And if I can work backwards, Jesus wants to have people ready when he comes by being in a state that's referred to as blameless. Towards that end, he works among those who are waiting for him by making sure that they have every gift. Specifically, he confirms in them which gift? The testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. That's the truth. It's still the truth today that God works to confirm his people who are waiting for his coming with this gift. They don't come behind an any, especially this one is confirmed in them so that they can be blameless when he appears. We didn't read verse 5 or verse 4. I guess we ought to. Verse 5 says that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. It's part of that verse 6. It's confusing to separate them at that point. The gift in verse 6 of the testimony of Jesus, how does it enrich people? In utterance and knowledge. It's, it's the gift of prophecy. It's by communicating to them in, in wise words and counsels. I have seven minutes left, and I'm not happy about that. Colossians 2, turn with me there. I'm not mad at anybody, if that's what you're wondering. I'm just disappointed in the situation. Colossians chapter 2. There is a book that is more relevant to Adventists than other books. I made, that was ill said. There is a book that is more relevant to the last day church of Laodicea than other books. That's the book of Colossians. How do I know that? Well, because at the end of the book, Paul says something like, what I've written to you, be sure to share it with the people at Laodicea, and what I wrote to them, be sure you read it. Did you ever know that Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans? It's not anywhere in the Bible. But you can find what he said that ought to be read there, and that's the book of Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in... Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Do we qualify for that last point? We do. We're people who heard the teachings of Paul taught from letters, but never had him explain them to us personally. And apparently people who had others explaining these things often had similar misconceptions to people in Colossae and people in Laodicea. Verse 2, what was he hoping for them? That their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love. That's something that the last day church needs. 
We need our hearts to be knit together in love. That's different than sentimentalism. But that's not all. It says, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. What does Laodicea need? If you could summarize it in two things, what did Paul say? She needs to be knit together in an experience of having love. She also needs to be knit together in an experience of understanding, specifically to acknowledge the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Well, it's just four verses before that in the same book. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Laodicea has a problem. She isn't very loving. She has another problem. And that is that she doesn't want to admit that it's really true, that Christ can live in her heart and that that's the hope that she can have, the character of Jesus. Those of you that have the handout, the last point there, point four, is going to have to be made really quick. It says, so persecuted they the prophets. That's the title of our next study this afternoon. Well, I'm, I'm referring to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. And he said, when they speak all manner of evil against you falsely, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the prophets. If there's anything you can know about prophets from Matthew 5, it's that tons of lies are made about them. Was that very clear from the verse as I quoted it to you? Listen carefully again. When they speak all manner of evil against you falsely, rejoice, because that's how they persecuted the prophets. How did they persecute the prophets? By speaking all manner of evil falsely. Then don't just believe anything you hear about someone who claims to be a prophet or to speak for God. Because it's as true as the Bible that people tell lies and lies and lies and lies about them. Ellen White, that lady I told you that I have confidence that she was a messenger of God who wrote those nine volumes of testimonies, way, way back in the book Early Writings, wrote something about the amalgamation of man and beast. She indicated that that amalgamation is one of the things that brought the flood. And many detractors since that time have really made fun of her as being scientifically illiterate because you just can't cross a man and an animal and get offspring of any sort whatsoever. And that passage talked about the offspring that came from that amalgamation. My first point is to tell you that Genesis also says that the flood came from the amalgamation of man. All that early writings added is that just as there was amalgamation going on among human races, there was that, what's amalgamation? It's just a word that means mix. Most of you have amalgams in your head. They're in your teeth, right? They're a mixture of mercury and silver or mercury and gold. Amalgam, it's a mixture. What kind of mixture was going on in Genesis? Turn there. I have 90 seconds or 120 maybe. Genesis chapter 4. All right, Genesis chapter 4, the last verse, verse 26. It says, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. Then man began to call on the name of the Lord. It says in this Bible, like it says in most of yours, but if you have a marginal reading, it says something different. It says, Then, man, then men began to be called by the name of the Lord. I'm sure the marginal reading is correct because it's not like that Adam had not ever prayed. Does that make sense to you what I just said? The marginal reading is preferable. It was during the time of Seth and his son that people began to be called by the name of the Lord. Like they call us Christians, they called them the sons of 
God. Look at Genesis chapter 6. No need to say, as the Jehovah's Witness do, that there was cohabitation between angels and men. No, it was cohabitation between the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain. Actually, the daughters of Cain, right? We may get it straight. I was getting too early. The sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. Genesis chapter 6, and we're looking at verse 2 and 3. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh. When did God say he was going to bring a flood? It was when the mixture of the two races happened, of whom God had said that there should be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. When that enmity was broken down, the case of mankind was made nearly hopeless unless God intervened. And so he did. Verse 5. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The amalgamation of man and beast was never intended by Ellen White to mean the amalgamation of man with beast. It was the amalgamation, according to Genesis, of men with men that should have been at enmity with each other. And why did the critics get it wrong? They did err, not knowing the scripture, nor the power of God. And so it is today. This afternoon, we'll discuss a number of objections made against that woman. They're as groundless and silly as that one. Maybe I shouldn't say silly because people here might sincerely think there's merit in them. But there isn't. Feel free to come. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you before those here for our true testimony in Revelation 3. I confess that what you say about your church today is true, that we are generally unconverted. And I ask that you would use the testimony of Jesus as you said you would to make awaiting people ready for your coming. Reveal to us yourself. Teach us how to pay attention that we can have the faith that we so desperately need. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.